0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Charles Pryor and you're listening to New Books in British Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. We don't think of Canada as a republic. Even in its modern and vibrantly multicultural form, there's something monarchical about the place. The Queen appears on every coin, on the $20 bill, and pretty often in portrait form, placed over the home team's net in hockey rinks from coast to coast. Monarchy is everywhere in Canada and feeds into a collective identity that prizes political moderation, consensus, and strives for egalitarian values. But there was a time when Canada might have taken a Republican turn. Between 1837 and 1867, a period bracketed by rebellion and confederation, a group of writers debated the virtues of American style republican government versus British constitutional monarchy. In these discussions, American culture and political institutions were a dominant frame of reference. In Between Empire and Republic, Wanagodno Kenworthy employs three Anglophone authors as lenses that help us to understand a period of possible political futures as states formed in the wake of revolution, and as Canada defined itself uh, in contrast to its Southern neighbor. Juana joins me from the Miami University of Ohio. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for being here. So I guess I wanna start uh, with something that I mentioned in the introduction, and that is that you focus on a particular period. Uh, This period follows the American Revolution and the War of 1812, but it precedes the outbreak of the American Civil War and the consolidation of Canada in 1867. And most people might think, well, there's nothing happening in that period. So what drew you to it?
1: Well, I think that um, what drew me to it is that Canada has an unusual path to nationhood and Coming from an American Studies perspective, um, it's often it's often assumed that the American national experience of revolutionary liberalism, popular democracy, is normative for North America or or even elsewhere. Um, and what first got me excited about early Canada was. The question that spoke to my own personal experience of sudden breaks in in, uh, political regimes. Uh, If early canadian speaking Canadians and Americans were not radically ethnically different, if they had a shared history of British um, imperial origins, what role did the political structures and form of government play in shaping their distinct national identities? Uh, And when did that moment of divergence (laughs) took place? Um, So I... And of focused on the period between uh, the rebellions, uh, the anti-colonial rebellions of ni- 1837 and 1838 and the Confederation as a moment where things could have gone either way, uh, a moment where the communities of British North America tried to find their path and deliberated collectively um, what model to embrace and what would be their future trajectory. Um, for the community as a whole. And another thing that got me thinking about Canada at this junction actually was um, something that Benedict Anderson um, wrote in Imagined Communities in in his chapter devoted to uh, Creole nationalism, where he linked the rise of nationalism and republicanism um, with the rise of a literate middle class in the new world um, and uh, the rise of print capitalism and assumed again that the American model was um, the norm. quickly dismissed canada as an unexplained failure quote unquote of the american model of of nationalism anchored in republicanism so i wanted to explore this failure uh, what why didn't the american model catch on and when did this happen
0: so the, I mean, the period of sort of revolutionary churn has been has been studied again and again and again. Um, and David Armitage, who's who's written quite a lot about global and Atlantic revolutions in this period, has noted that, I mean, the major effect of the Atlantic revolutions um, was that they created new states, uh, but they left monarchies largely intact, which then, of course certain populations, for example, the population in Canada cleaved very strongly to the British uh, monarchy. So this is really the central problematic, I I guess, that the book explores. So how does that fact of the presence of monarchy and the presence of empire um, shape political debate?
1: So my interest is in how this political debate was reflected in conversations that were not directly political and they filtered even in the in the literary works produced in the period. And I would add that to this binary of republicanism versus monarchy that characterizes the age of revolutions, um, we should also think about the rise of ideas about participatory government and democracy, which complicated <laughs> conversations. right? The the um, the colonies, the British colonies in, in uh, North America were linked ideologically, institutionally to the British Empire, but they were also very close to the United States um, and they were you know, witnesses to the, the political transformations of the United States in the 1820s, 1830s. Uh, Jacksonian America had expanded uh, the franchise to all white males. Ideas of popular democracy were transforming the Republican institutions of the early American Republic. And it is in this context that debates over the value of monarchy versus the value of republicanism uh, unfolded in British North America. So I would I would argue that um, it was in this moment that these parallel definitions of liberty that ultimately informed the parallel paths to modernity of what became Canada versus the US uh, started to take shape and be articulated in political discourse uh, as well as in literary discourse
0: so that's uh, that leads I guess to the to the sort of the source base and 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 the focus of the book now this is not even though in your in your notes and and throughout you refer to, a lot of the sort of standard interpretations of, of Anglophone political thought this is emphatically uh, not a study of, of political writers uh, I mean uh, political writers like Payne and Burke get a look in uh, but essentially your your protagonists are, are are not that and and they're not, well, they're not, you know, not only not household names, but not even household names in the households of people who spend too much time thinking about this sort of stuff. And we're not dealing with political treatises, we're dealing with a wide range of sort of literary forms. Um, so you focus on three writers in particular um, and 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 use them to, to explore a range of themes. So I was just... Let's just work our way through through these three writers and, and say a little bit about the themes that are really sort of central to them.
1: Yeah, so the, the three writers that I selected are part of the first professional pre-confederation authors um, uh, in Canada to have secured an international audience. And this is relevant because they wrote simultaneously for three implied audiences, um, The British imperial one, the American one, which was closer and even more lucrative than the British one, and the colonial one. And as authors, they enjoy different degrees of fame and success. And um, even as members of the colonial literary elites, they belong to different social classes. But all three were connected, either through their lives or their travels or through their extended families, to the empire, which they considered home. So they have these dual allegiances that were simultaneously colonial and imperial. Uh, Their backgrounds, in a way, illustrate the 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 demographics and the the trajectories of local identities uh, of uh, British North America. Um, And they were published in same colonial periodicals. They responded to the same political events across the colonies and across the empire. And overall, they're all attuned to these ideological debates we talked about uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, So I find them interesting to study as a group uh, as they grappled with their dual position as Britons and colonials on what was ultimately a periphery of the empire uh, next to a rising global power, uh, and how they reflected on the political contingencies of history, and how they struggled to reconcile their local allegiances with the kind of metropolitan and imperial values. Um, The first one is a a household name in Canadian literature, uh, Susanna Moody. Um, she was born in England. She immigrated to Upper Canada with her family uh, for financial reasons. She was the uh, impoverished daughter of a genteel merchant, and she was uh, married to a British officer who was a younger son. So they, they saw exile as an opportunity for upward mobility. But um, she saw herself pretty much throughout her life as an exile in the new world. Um, She always pined for England, and she never returned to England. Although she continued to publish in London, um, she never really seemed completely reconciled with with her new home, with Canada. She famously compared her love for Canada to the feelings which, quote, the condemned criminal entertains for his cell. So she wasn't particularly popular with her Canadian readers at the time.
0: I, I I know that feeling. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so she she was not um, uh, beloved uh, in in Canada, but she enjoyed popularity in Britain and in the United States. And after the Confederation, actually, she became integrated in this kind of the the national canon right The, the literary project is always intrinsically linked to the national project so she became invented as sort of a founding mother of canadian literature although she she saw herself as british throughout her life um and uh i focus primarily on her two canadian books so books that focus on um her experience coming to Canada, living in the backwoods of Canada, basically on the Canadian frontier, uh, and then moving to the more settled parts in Belleville. Um, and throughout her Canadian books, she makes constant comparisons between the life and, and mores of, of Canada, the British colonies, and what she takes to be the norm, right? British gentility, British assumptions about social uh, behavior. Um, and the American model is implicitly part of these com- uh, these comparisons that she draws uh, because um, whenever she finds something in Canada that she disliked, and there was a lot that she did not like about her Canadian life, um, she often lamented that colonial Moors were the way they were because they were corrupted by the proximity to the U.S., and particularly due to its Republican and Democratic influences. So her main concern, I would say, is social equality. So social equality understood as um, appreciation for a hierarchical worldview where different groups and different social classes interact in harmony alongside uh, one another. And this may seem paradoxical for somebody who moved to the new world because uh, the social hierarchies in Britain made it impossible for herself and her family to live a comfortable life. So there was a sense of openness to an idea of, of um, upward mobility that the new world uh, offered. But somehow for Moody, this upward mobility had to be um, confined to a larger sense of British gentility that would remain compatible to uh, the British hierarchical social patterns and ultimately to the monarchy. And, and, um, and this because it was the monarchy and the empire that allowed her to think of Canada as home. <laughs> yeah. So the, the leveling effect of American democracy, um, she viewed this as, as something that would erode respect for the hierarchies that structured British society with monarchy as, as its core. Um, and throughout her Canadian books, class and gentility function as basically markers of imperial belonging and, and the cultural shock that permeates her books, um, Stems from how hard it was for her to maintain class differences on the frontier in the Canadian backwoods. I mean, this was pretty much uh, impossible given the hardships of frontier life. Um, but Moody discusses. Social equality uh, linked not as not to clothes or material goods because everybody was poor on the frontier, um, but rather linked to behavior and, and manners that function as signifiers of civility or of Britishness, um, and she constantly clashes with uh, either yankee settlers as she calls them or the canadians uh, that uh, lived in the bush uh, in the backwoods along uh, near their uh, property uh, and she she describes them as so the canadians she describes as Yankee-fied britons or yankification being the pro- general process through which american political ideas change social mores in in the colonies and ultimately saps the loyalty of of the canada so in in this universe for Moody, we can say that the U.S. becomes a, an ideological center that was pulling Canada in the wrong direction, um, and it's this desire to maintain social hierarchies that informs the very very her very negative portrayals, for instance, of the Irish and Scotch uh, class immigrants, uh, whom she describes as as uh, dangerously yankified this is the term she uses over and over again So the moment they touch canadian soil and become contaminated <laughs> with republican and democratic ideas she uses this uh, terms of, of kind of disease right democracy almost is con- contaminates these uh, uh, irish immigrants and they become yankified and lose all respect for their better so this is this kind of resentment at the uh, egalitarian spirit that the immigrants felt when reaching the new world she views this as um Dangerous, uh, and it's uh, very ironic in, in that for her, um, class differences trump race, right? She has, by contrast, she has very positive portrayals of the natives that she encounters in the bush, um, and she inscribes the natives in, in the, this imagined geography of North America as almost co-participants in the British imperial community. Um, Somehow they seem to her more culturally sympathetic to British hierarchies. though so they're more genteel than the, the Yankee settlers uh, who reject all social norms and, and uh, whose loyalty is uncertain. So she, she, she never sat down uh, to share a meal with her servants, for instance, uh, but she did invite her native friends, as she called them, the, her friends, uh, to share meals together. So um, there is this interesting um, kind of, reorganization of her understanding of equality in the harsh environment of the frontier where gentility is linked to politeness and, um, kind of social mores that she would view as compatible with what she expected of, um, life back in England. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, I I would add a few interesting uh, details about the the career of her books. I mentioned that all of these authors were published in in Britain. They were published in the colonies, but they're also published in uh, in the U.S. And uh, Moody's um, first book, Roughing It in the Bush, uh, which is a collection of essays and poems that she wrote when they first arrived to Canada in the 1830s, and then were republished two decades later by her London editor, Richard Bentley. it was, was popular in London, was published uh, and distributed in, in Canada. And then it was soon republished in New York by G.P. Putnam's sons, um, only a few months actually after the 1852 London edition. But the American edition radically altered the text. So um, Putnam's editor, Charles Frederick Briggs, without Moody's permission or knowledge, he basically removed all the appropriate British elements of the story, all the elements or the passages where she was expressing her support for the British crown or for British Moors, um, all the textual expressions of loyalty to the crown, and all the words ultra-Republican, Republican, and Democratic, which... Terms which Moody used as pejorative terms whenever describing the egalitarian mores of the colonies. So this, um, this expurgation of the text kinda is an indicator of the power that political categories had in defining the, the borders of collective identity in North America at that point. Um, so the result was marketed in the U.S. as a frontier adventure, an exotic far-west romance of life in the Canadian backwoods. Uh, and it was very popular. It was the basis of numerous reprints by Putnam and by other American publishers. And it was this expurgated, uh, kind of neutral version of Roughing it in a Bush that existed alongside the pro-British uh, <laughs> um, edition um, until the 18, um in know, 70s, I don't remember, 1878, I believe, uh, first Canadian edition. Uh, so, uh, these two editions existed alongside uh, in the colonies.
0: So, what were the, the American editors, they were trying to sort of recast <laughs> it as some sort of frontier Western? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That so, something sense. that was not a, a Western that was associated directly to the British space or to the the imaginary of the empire in North America, right? The frontier had to be an American. (laughs) The monopoly of the frontier was an American thing uh, in literature. So, yeah. So um, the other author that I I, uh, write about is Thomas Chandler Halliburton, um, who was a Nova Scotian judge, right? He was born um, in the colonies. He was actually of New England loyalist stock. Uh, and he was the first Canadian author to achieve wild world recognition. He was for a while considered a serious rival to Charles, Dick- Charles Dickens, especially in the 1830s, um, with his uh, when his um, Sam Slick sketches uh, were released. Um, he was a he was a politician uh, as well as a writer, um, so he engages with these political ideas more um, more directly than Susanna Moody or than the other author I write about. Um, Richardson, and um, he wrote political satire and historical work, um, and his protagonist is a Yankee pleddler that travels across Nova Scotia. Um, so the, the thing that Richardson is, um, Halliburton is fo- focuses on um, is the, um, uh, the, the concern that American Republican institutions could not provide social stability. Uh, in the face of popular democracy. And he did not object to republicanism per se, but rather to the egalitarian spirit that infused it. Right? So this uh, mistrust towards authority, that any authority external to the people, which was present in the American Revolution, he saw that Jacksonian populism was taking this to a new level, and Whenever there were discussions about introducing representative institutions in the uh, Canadian colonies, he was afraid that this would be the first step towards um, full popular democracy and then uh, republicanism. So, um, the logic of Halliburton's satire is that if American republican institutions had given rise to this uh, unruly populism of the Jacksonian year, uh, years, maybe the same could happen in reverse if democracy was introduced into colonial institutions, they would lead to republicanism and undermine mm-hmm. the monarchy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the, the third author that I write about is um, Major John Richardson, who was part Ottawa through his uh, mother, through his father. He was part Scottish. Um, he was a veteran of the War of 1812, where he fought alongside Tecumseh and his Indian warriors. He, he, was, um, he lived in... in most of his life as a, as a um, sailor in the British Imperial Army and only returned to Upper Canada in 1838 as a journalist for The Times. Um, and he tried to create frontier fiction that would do for Canada what uh, Fenimore Cooper's frontier fiction had done for, for the U.S. Um, but he didn't really make it as a, as a writer in Canada. He moved to New York City and, um, where he died in abject poverty. So he, he's not exactly a success story, although his Canadian novels were integrated in the, in the again, Canadian literary history as, again, uh, representing an early stage in the uh, imaginary of, of the nation. Um, and what's interesting about Richardson is his approach to whiteness. Um, he, um, his two Canadian novels, Wakusta and the Canadian Brothers, recast the story of North America uh, end of the 18th century and uh, the War of 1812, respectively, through the lens of the political structures of the mid-19th century. Um, and the United States in both cases is a quintessential other to the colonies. Um, and he was engaging with whiteness at this point the same way as other conversations in, in Britain and the colonies um, did, namely this this myth that somehow the natives in the British Empire had a far superior fate to that of the natives in the United States, and that uh, British gentility uh, was measured by uh, its uh, enlightened attitudes towards race, right? So racial tolerance becomes a litmus test for British civility. Um, and Richardson engages with this, right? His protagonists, his native protagonists are allies of the Canadians and they fight against the Americans. But he also acknowledges and repeatedly hints at the fact that both the Canadian and the American political ventures in North America are essentially settler colonial um, ventures. They're linked to European colonialism and they're built upon the removal and... um, um, annihilation of native pop, uh, populations and their cultures. So while he links Canadianness to the ability to cooperate with the natives and Britishness as an antidote to American, um, the American appeal, he also pushes <laughs> at the fuzzy borders of Britishness, if you will, and, and exposes how much Britishness dependent upon whiteness and how whiteness is inextricably linked to power and imperialism in North America.
0: Wow! Uh, thanks. That's a, that's only a sort of a a, a quickest uh, whistle stop tour of, of the book, which is a brilliant sort of intellectual biographies and, and fabulous exegesis of the text. I should have known uh, about uh, about Moody uh, because I I grew up oh, forty miles from Belleville, but that's another <laughs> story. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> You see, this is this is this is the problem with Canadians. They they know they know zero about their own history, and so when they they have it told to them, ironically, by someone who could be almost further away from it, we yeah. sit there going, "Oh, really? I didn't know that." Um, anyway, uh, so uh, the book uh, closes, and and I could sort of sense this coming uh, as I as I read it because um, you know it's 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 kind of what we've been we've been facing, uh, the past number of years, uh, by taking us back to that, that day in, in January, uh, 2021, when, uh, the supporters of, of, uh, the former president of the United States, uh, I don't need to mention who that is, uh, decided that they would, uh, go on a little field trip, uh, and drop in on the U S Capitol. Um, and this was at display, uh, for a lot of people of, of a very, you know, the unruly quality of American Liberty. And this is the sort of thing that your, your authors are, are consistently sort of uh, gives them real pause. Um, so what was it uh, that prevented uh, Canada from becoming a Republic?
1: Well, I, I, uh... I think that we also have some more recent examples of uh, how liberty is contested in the U.S. and Canada today, right? The trucker convoys. Oh, Uh,
0: the truckers. God bless the truckers, yeah.
1: Yes. Uh, And uh, I cannot claim that I have a definitive answer to why Canada did not become a republic. And, you know, things may still change. Um, But uh, as I explained in a recent piece in in the conversation, and in another one in Washington Post, It was part of the conversations at the time, right, the skepticism about the ability of um, the American political system to deliver long-term stability, especially in times of rapid social change and and uncertainty, right, at the time driven by immigration, rapid industrialization. uh, These were part of the equation, but so were the the British monarchical loyalties, right? The the Canadian model revolves around continuity rather than discontinuity and revolution and 1867, right? What the parliamentary liberal democracy that uh, the Canadian founding fathers chose was designed to avoid the institutional flaws that they saw in the American system, and to go back to the storming of the Capitol or the trucker protests, um, you know, such movements can always be framed as revolutions when they're embedded in a larger cultural narrative of of liberty, where the legitimacy of American institutions is always contingent upon the willingness of the people to accept them. Uh, so, and when the people is a contested category, uh, this can easily lead to to social unrest and even violence. Now, we can see this even in the political trajectory of references to the American Revolution in Amer- in, in contemporary culture, right? In the Gaston flag, if in 1775, the don't tread on me was addressed to the British king in 2021 or 2022, right? The convoy um, uh, use of the flags, The imagined interlocutor is the U.S. federal government that's viewed as having lost legitimacy. So building the imagined community on revolution and on institutions, depending on popular will all the time, uh, was perceived by the colonial Canadians as potentially leading to instability. So um, I would say that it is definitely part of the, the story.
0: Thank you very much. I mean, I, I began with the, with the discussion of hockey rinks and the Queen, and I'm sure that the the portrait of the Queen has gazed down benignly on on a lot of violence uh, in the stands and on the ice. Uh, so Canadians are, for anyone will tell you, are are not exactly that chilled out. I've been speaking with one I've got to know, Kenworthy, the author of Between Empire and Republic, America in the Colonial Canadian Imagination, published not too long ago uh, by Lexington Books. And also go and check out her uh, brilliant uh, cogent essays on the conversation and in the Washington Post. Um, this, is, this is history at its best uh, in dialogue with our present. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me.